Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. I've spent a couple of years now telling you about all the delightful things that are related to living in the Buffalo area. Weather-wise, August in Buffalo is perfect. And if you want to branch out a bit, how about a 25-minute car ride to Niagara Falls, 90 minutes to Toronto, 35 minutes to the Shaw Festival in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, or a little more than an hour to the Chautauqua Institution, an adult education center and summer resort where big thinkers gather to partake in offerings organized around the arts, religious ideas, and recreation. I'm Peter Sabota. In this episode, our guest, Amanda Hunsaker, draws on her background in public health and her current doctoral studies to discuss the current landscape related to the diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease and how advances in diagnostic technology associated with dementia will provide the potential for new insights in the care of these patients. She begins by providing some sobering statistics related to the prevalence, trends, and the impact on healthcare costs related to Alzheimer's disease. She goes on to examine the lack of diagnostic and treatment processes that characterize the current state of this field. Ms. Hunsaker comments on the role social workers who work with AD patients can play in diagnostic and care planning and how their skill set is particularly well suited to the needs of these patients and their caregivers. A doctoral student at the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work, Ms. Hunsaker provides extensive commentary and recommendations about the future of diagnostics and treatment in this field, including the role that biomarkers will play in diagnostic efforts related to Alzheimer's disease. She concludes by discussing the impact of the developing technological advances in this field on social work practice, especially as testing options become more available. Amanda Hunsaker, LSW, MPH, is a doctoral candidate at the University of Pittsburgh School of Social Work. Her research interests include care decision-making issues for individuals with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers, and the process of communication among people with cognitive impairment and the process of communication among people with cognitive impairment and their health care providers. Rachel Rotach, MSW, is Director of Advocacy and Early Stage Programming at the Alzheimer's Association of Western New York here in the Buffalo area and an alum of the UB School of Social Work. The statistics Ms. Hunsaker referenced in today's interview were taken from the Alzheimer's Association. Hi, my name is Rachel Rotach. I am a social worker at the Alzheimer's Association. My role is the Director of Advocacy and Early Stage Programming here. And today I'm with Amanda Hunsaker. She is from the University of Pittsburgh and is here to talk a little bit about advances in diagnostic technology for dementia and how it will impact social work. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for doing this interview. For those of us not familiar with Alzheimer's disease, could you give a description of the illness? 
Sure. So Alzheimer's disease, or AD, as a lot of people call it, is a progressive and, and terminal brain disease, and it impacts cognitive abilities that interfere with daily life activities. So things like remembering new information, remembering names or appointments, problem solving, thinking abstractly, and making sound judgments all become more difficult. Its reach is really substantial, unfortunately. About 5.4 million individuals in the U.S. alone have Alzheimer's, and it's the sixth leading cause of death in our country. And we know that age is a key risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So about 13% of individuals over the age of 65 have AD. And this prevalence dramatically increases to almost 1 in 2 or 45% for people who are 85 years or older. So as life expectancies are increasing and the baby boom generation is aging, the number of individuals with AD is really expected to surge. There are estimates that by 2025, about 6.7 million older adults will be affected by AD which is a growth of 30% from current estimates today. So the costs, too, are extensive, costs to the healthcare system and to caregivers and also to patients. Payments for long-term care, healthcare, and hospice for people with dementia are expected to grow from current numbers in 2012 of $200 billion to $1 trillion in 2050. And Medicare and Medicaid really shoulder a lot of these costs. They cover about 70% of these healthcare costs. So also when we look at mortality data and look at death rates for many major diseases such as stroke and prostate cancer, breast cancer, HIV AIDS and heart disease, we've really been seeing a decline in the death rates from these illnesses. And unfortunately, we're not seeing the same thing for Alzheimer's disease. The death rates have increased on 66% from 2000 to 2008. And it, it seems that the real reason for this is that there's no medication currently that can slow or prevent AD. We have good medications that can slow the progression of memory symptoms and that can treat behaviors related to Alzheimer's disease, but really no medication to cure it. So that really seems to point to care planning and care coordination and supportive services all provided through social work as how individuals really can be helped. Supporting the caregiver has really been a focus then of, of social service systems and of care coordination. And that's really because family members are, experience significant burden. They clock in an estimated 17 billion hours of unpaid care, and that was in 2012. And that was valued at more than $210 billion in unpaid care that was given. And family caregivers report very high levels of stress and depression. Their care roles can adversely affect their health, their employment situation, and their financial situations. And two, of course, though it's been less studied, this disease, of course, very much affects the person who's experiencing the illness. There's this progressive loss of cognition that individuals are experiencing and a progressive loss of functional abilities. And there are also negative outcomes such as anxiety and depression and psychosis that can develop with Alzheimer's disease. 
so given just the, the stark experience of dementia and the, the burden that it places on families and care systems, there's really been a move to improve diagnostic and treatment processes. And this has really been a key focus of Alzheimer's disease research. And what are the current diagnostic processes for Alzheimer's disease right now? So currently, there isn't any one test for Alzheimer's disease, and unlike other illnesses, there's no definitive blood test that tells whether an individual has Alzheimer's disease. So the assessments that are used are multi-component and include interactions with a, a range of healthcare providers. So they include a medical or neurological evaluation, taking a medical history to understand previous disease history and family history completing neuropsychological testing or mental status testing to look test orientation to time and place, testing learning or recall of information, problem solving and attention and processing speed. And in addition, there also can be brain imaging or blood work done, which is very much more to rule out other conditions that can cause memory problems. And so it's very much a, di a diagnosis of ruling out other conditions that can cause a similar symptom pattern, such as an adverse effect from a medication or depression, thyroid problems, or something like a brain tumor. All these things could give a similar symptom pattern and can be ruled out. A lot of the assessment also depends on report of symptoms from the patient and their family as to whether there has been a noticeable change that the patient and family can provide insight into. So with this assessment process, we're 90% or more accurate in diagnosis. We're not perfect, but getting there. And another part, a growing part of assessment is using new diagnostic recommendations that include the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. And this captures individuals who are experiencing declines in memory that are noticeable, but their ability to carry out daily activities is still intact. So these folks might have difficulty with remembering important information that they would have previously remembered or in remembering and carrying out steps to complete a certain more complicated task. So diagnosis for MCI is very much based on clinical symptoms, symptom report, and also doing this neurocognitive testing and less an, a process of ruling out other conditions. But overall, with the diagnosis of MCI and also with earlier diagnosis of dementia, it all points to individuals who are diagnosed to have more time and ability to participate in counseling and care planning. And it also allows clinicians to be able to better identify people who are most at risk and to target treatments to those individuals. For those of us who are social workers or for the people listening who want to be social workers, what would you say their role is in the dementia diagnosis and, and care planning? Social work really seems to have a wide range of rules currently, very much in healthcare and in different kinds of social service organizations. So there are social workers who are providing support and education to caregivers through support groups. So social workers may be facilitating support groups to help caregivers talk with other caregivers about how to cope with different aspects of this illness. 
Social workers also are a part of assessment and implementation of care plans for current and future support needs. So these assessments might be looking at needs for support with daily activities or support with medication management or with homemaking. Social workers also do a lot of referral, and probably the Alzheimer's Association does a lot of referral and to other resources that might be useful for families in the community. And they also provide assessment of the environment of the patient and what needs there may be for adapting or changing the environment for that patient to make it safer. So it could be addressing safety issues like wandering, or it may be looking at social engagement and improving the social engagement of the person with dementia. So maybe there would be involvement in adult daycare to help stimulate the patient socially, but also provide respite for the family member. And then, of course, advocacy. And of course, the Alzheimer's Association has great and critical involvement in advocacy for patients and families to improve how care is delivered for these families and also just to improve the state of research for diagnosis and treatment. So much of the support that social workers provide seems to go to family caregivers. And though this is really changing, though, that there's been more of a focus on the patient or and to us on the patient and family as a care dyad. So there's been more focus on understanding the experience of the person with dementia and thereby understanding the behaviors and emotions of the patient in relation to what their experience with this illness. So along with this, there's been sort of a emerging within social work, a medical model of care and more of a social model of care for people with dementia. Under the medical model, there's very much symptoms are diagnosed and treated. There's a biological cause that underlies those symptoms and the diagnosis. And evidence-based practice is put into place to treat the symptoms of the illness. In the more of a social model of care, impairment really is considered to be residing more within the environment or interacting with the environment. So there's more of an interest in supporting that the unique experience of the individual and what role they may play themselves in maintaining their well-being. So social work has been key in really merging these models of care where symptom treatment can very much help alleviate those memory changes and reduce behaviors related to dementia, but where the person with AD also has their own individual experience that matters and that they can be supported in their meaningful participation in care decisions. So this has seemed to be how social work has really been at the forefront of dementia care. Great. And you're clearly an expert in this field right now, but I'm curious, what sparked your interest initially in the dementia detection technology? Before moving to Pittsburgh, I was living in Atlanta and worked at Emory University with Victoria Phillips in the School of Public Health. And I got to work with her on several studies that we're developing a new assessment tool for Alzheimer's disease-related behaviors. And um, using this tool with clients and family caregivers in a home and community-based Medicaid waiver program, we were finding first that a large number of the clients in the program had cognitive impairment, and further, a large number also had dementia-related behaviors that families were having difficulty with managing and really needed support in how to manage those behaviors. 
So I worked on another study with Dr. Phillips looking at the effectiveness of a team-based approach to ways to help families and paid caregivers manage these behaviors. And this approach partnered care coordinators or social workers and nursing supervisors and home care aides and families in the assessment and care planning and monitoring of dementia-related behaviors and in monitoring care burden. And what I really took was this there was an important emphasis on this multidisciplinary approach to dementia care and a focus on improving the quality of life of the person with dementia and their caregivers. And I was also really struck by working with social workers and their approach to collaborative work. It's really incredible to me. After moving to Pittsburgh, I began working in dementia research at the Alzheimer Disease Research Center at the University of Pittsburgh and also with Jennifer Lingler on physician-patient caregiver communication study. And through this work, I became more interested in shared decision-making and the role of the patient in care decision-making, especially within dementia. So I started a joint MSW-PhD program at University of Pittsburgh and really was supported by my mentors, Daniel Rosen and Ray Engel, and further investigating shared decision-making in dementia care. And while I've been in school, a lot of significant developments around diagnostic tools for AD were going on at Pitt, led by Bill Clunk and Chet Mathis. And their work in early detection for Alzheimer's pathology really led me to to think about how these technologies would change the role of social work practice in dementia care, and also the need for a shared decision-making approach with the use of these technologies. And I know you've mentioned earlier some changes in the diagnostic process, and I'm wondering how will this continue to change in the future, do you think? Yeah, so you're right, Rachel, that those change with having MCI as part of the diagnostic process has really made a, a huge difference. And in addition to these clinical indicators, research on biomarkers for dementia is really underway. So biomarkers are tools that can predict or indicate a disease process, or it could be considered a proxy for whether a disease process is present or is likely to develop. For example, with cholesterol, cholesterol is a biomarker for heart disease, and those with high cholesterol are treated with an anti-cholesterol medication to reduce that risk of heart disease. So the same could be said of proteins in the body that increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease, and that includes measures of beta amyloid or tau proteins in the body that are both considered to result in these hallmark abnormalities in the brain, amyloid plaques or neurofibrillary tangles that are both considered signs of AD pathology. So there are four main types of biomarker tests, cerebral spinal fluid testing and blood testing and genetic profiling and brain imaging. And with cerebral spinal fluid or CSF testing, there are proteins in the CSF that are measured and a sample is taken through a lumbar puncture. And these tests very much focus on measuring levels of beta amyloid or tau proteins in the CSF. The current work is really trying to better standardize procedures for measuring these proteins and give meaning to amounts of proteins in the cerebral spinal fluid. There are also 
blood tests that are doing similar things and measuring levels of beta amyloid or tau in blood. And again, the work is really around trying to better standardize how these procedures are done. Another big area is around genetic profiling. So we know that there are genes that are deterministic or that cause Alzheimer's disease, and that's true for a very small percentage of individuals who have AD. And, and then there are also genes that we know identify a risk for Alzheimer's disease, and there's a lot of work underway to better understand the meaning of that risk and how that information can be made useful to patients that are interested in undergoing genetic profiling. Brain imaging is another big area of development. So there are different methods to look at brain volume or shrinkage, to look at the uptake of glucose or sugar in the brain that's needed for memory and problem solving. But again, there isn't yet a set criteria for determining a diagnosis from these tools. Molecular imaging is an area that's really been growing within brain imaging. So molecular imaging uses pet imaging and radio tracers that are inserted in the bloodstream to detect a chemical or cellular level change that's related to a disease process. And these technologies can detect um, amyloid beta in the brain. Pittsburgh Compound B, or PIB, was the first radioactive tracer to be used with PET for Alzheimer's disease and to be used in living humans, and it can bind to amyloid beta in the brain and make that amyloid visible in PET scanning. And so PIB has been widely used in research, and it's making its way also into the clinical setting. There are other compounds that also exist and have been developed that can bind to amyloid. A sister compound to PIB is Amavid, and it's recently been approved by the Food and Drug Administration in April 2012. And it's indicated for use with individuals with cognitive impairment who are undergoing an evaluation for AD or another type of cognitive decline. So unfortunately, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services aren't yet covering Yamavid, and the costs run about $3,000, and so the cost is substantial to folks. But really, the, the reason seems to be that CMS isn't covering it is, is related to the state of treatment, that there isn't what could be considered a treatment that slows the progression of AD currently. And the testing right now isn't really viewed as a way to improve outcomes for individuals with cognitive impairment or improve the management of cognitive impairment. So there's work underway to really address that issue and to build evidence that using amyloid imaging can really change how clinicians manage illness. All of this research seems to show that we're moving towards a direction of having using amyloid testing in the pre-symptomatic stages or when an individual is diagnosed with an MCI. So as far as how amyloid deposition builds in the brain, it seems to be a very slow process and it occurs over a long period of time. And studies are showing that an individual with no symptoms of Alzheimer's disease can have amyloid in the brain. So that may mean that individuals will be using these biomarkers that indicate the presence of a hallmark AD pathology when they're asymptomatic. So this really has significant implications for dementia care practice and for how diagnosis is pursued and how the illness is managed as well.
Great. And as these technologies continue to develop and likely improve, what kind of impact will that have on social work practice? It seems to be there are sort of three key areas of development in dementia diagnosis. Individuals may be better able to differentiate the underlying cause of a dementia process. So where there is uncertainty about the kind of dementia an individual has, this could help to differentiate, for example, between Alzheimer's disease or another kind of dementia, such as frontal temporal dementia. It also may help us to better to earlier diagnose cognitive impairment. So for an individual diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, we might be more definitively able to determine whether MCI is an AD process and help to distinguish it from other conditions that could be causing MCI symptoms. So we may also be able to diagnose people and in pre-symptomatic stages. So although it's currently recommended against using these tools, that may be changing. And it seems to be the reasons that they're not currently recommended is because among cognitively normal people, we're seeing that there is an increased incidence of positive amyloid findings among these individuals. So we don't know whether these folks are going to progress to dementia and they're also older adults, so there may be other you know, illnesses that may be at play for these individuals. But it does point to the usefulness in determining who does and does not have amyloid in their brain, and also how to help people understand results from completing this kind of imaging. And it also opens up a lot of questions for sorting out who should complete such biomarker testing and figuring out who that would be. So would it be individuals with a family history or someone with memory complaints but no diagnosis of cognitive impairment? It also will be a great help in determining who would be treatment candidates as better treatments develop. And another big area that seems especially important for social work is that it opens up questions about how individuals might be counseled and the importance of providing clear information in pre-counseling before undergoing amyloid imaging and post-test counseling. It seems to me that really social work needs to be a part of providing this counseling, given that they already have this very prominent role in dementia care. So in conducting diagnostic counseling, risk communication can be adapted as a very useful framework for discussing the use of biomarker testing and the ramifications of the diagnosis. And this protocol uses a shared decision-making approach that walks the patient and the family through developing an understanding of the risks and the seriousness of a positive outcome and developing an understanding of the testing process and what the risks and benefits are of actually doing the testing, what alternatives there might be to testing, and uncertainties with the, the findings related to the testing. And it can also help people think about weighing their own values that they place on the benefits and risks that could be associated with testing. For example, would there be an impact on family strain or around decisions about long-term care? And then really, in the end, to engage the family and the patient in the decision-making process and to help them come to a decision that they have comfort with. So when applying pretest counseling, specifically more to amyloid imaging, this would really help people make informed decisions about whether to participate in testing and what 
different outcomes from testing could mean. So this process might start with assessing the patient and family's goals and their current preferences for amyloid imaging. And with that, to kind of explore the patient's motivation for seeking that imaging, as well as how the family might view that patient's interest in imaging. Is there a difference of opinion around participation in imaging? With that, the counselor might explore what the individual hopes to learn from the testing, or is there a family history or a family experience with AD that kind of is driving their interest in such testing and to further explore that issue. This process overall should hopefully leave the patient and family better informed and help them to understand their own individual circumstances and how they influence or confound their decision to undergo imaging as they kind of describe their reasoning process. Hopefully it would also help people to think about the potential outcomes from imaging, whether the outcome is a positive that there is amyloid deposition in the brain or negative that there isn't enough or is it in the middle ground that it's inconclusive and there's not a real clear read of whether amyloid deposition is occurring. There's also there would be time to discuss the potential ramifications around insurance status or whether employment would be an issue if there were positive findings, whether it would influence family dynamics or whether there are emotional or psychological risks to doing the imaging. And then are there also positive ramifications too? That removal of uncertainty around diagnosis, is that useful for the patient and family? Or is it can it be considered an opportunity to actually plan for future care, to consider career changes or to think about support needs that and financial planning that needs to be undertaken? And two, is it useful information for family, for the patient's children, to better understand their own family history around Alzheimer's disease? So then when two, when coming to the decision, it may be important to explore, is this is it up to the patient in the end, or does it seem that the family has significant influence and that's important to the patient? So all these things get to be explored in this pretest counseling and is especially useful for you know, a social worker to be in place to kind of guide this discussion. Then in post-test counseling and follow-up, this would include delivering the results from the imaging and helping patients and families just understand what the findings mean for them and given their situation, and then what recommendations there might be for future care planning and participation in preventive treatment trials or should treatment be initiated, and also to consider strategies to cope with any current memory loss or the potential for memory loss. So it seems really that social work practice can really be in a good position to take these roles on and the focus changes from of family caregivers to really supporting the person with cognitive impairment and their family through this diagnostic process and to really increase the involvement of individuals with positive amyloid or with cognitive impairment in their own care planning when they're most able to participate. And then another thing that seems really critical with taking on this approach is the multidisciplinary aspect of it, that there really would need to be and should continue to be a collaborative approach to the diagnostic process. So there may be, of course, a neurologist or a psychiatrist 
for a geriatrician, nurse practitioners involved in that whole assessment and diagnosis and diagnostic counseling process as well. It seems that social work practice with individuals with Alzheimer's disease is expanding right now. It sounds like it's kind of changing to meet the needs that are developing. And so I'm wondering, is there any research underway right now to kind of help inform clinicians' practice? So I had the chance to collaborate with Jennifer Lingler at the School of Nursing, and she's really doing some exciting work around thinking about delivering findings from amyloid imaging, especially for people with mild cognitive impairment. So she worked with a panel of experts that she convened from neuroimaging and bioethics and research regulation, neuropsychology, and also consulted external researchers who have expertise around diagnostic and results disclosure. And through these with the support of this panel of experts and external consultants, created a um, diagnostic disclosure protocol as a way to deliver, or hopefully ideally, deliver the results from amyloid imaging to individuals with MCI and their care partners. And so she tested this protocol in sessions with people with MCI and their family. And these were actually, of course, in mock feedback sessions, so we're not yet giving out results as amyloid imaging, but we used, she used hypothetical scenarios. And this protocol presented information on what a diagnosis of MCI means in terms of the risk to develop Alzheimer's disease. And then also the finding, whether it was hypothetically positive or negative or inconclusive. And then what that finding meant in terms of, for the patient and in terms of amyloid deposition was described. And based on the findings, recommendations for treatment and care were given as well. This protocol also included providing pictures of PIB imaging so that individuals participating in the sessions could see the difference between what a brain with amyloid deposition looks like versus a brain without amyloid deposition. So there was really sort of a tangible visual for people to look at. And Dr. Linger found that people really were receptive to receiving these findings and understood the meaning of the findings as well. Would you think um, that helped them kind of understand the changes that were going on? I feel like a lot of times we talk about Alzheimer's and it seems kind of abstract. Would you say that that mm -hmm. imaging helps them with that? It really seemed to. I mean, I think especially Dr. Bungler and, and I was a part of conducting focus groups with some of the participants to just further talk with them about what they took away from those sessions and what recommendations they had to improve them. And the tangibility of actually having a picture of a, a brain that had, had gone through PID imaging and that comparison of a healthy brain versus one with MCI or Alzheimer's disease was striking to them. I mean, it really seemed to show was something that was tangible versus they, all of these individuals had heard from a neurologist and the social worker that they had MCI, but that was based on what was sometimes deemed to be sort of more subjective assessment. So this, I think, definitely, as you said, that imaging really was critical for them. That's great. Was there anything else you wanted to add on that research? I think that this work is just showing that people are receptive to these findings 
And one other concern can be that people with cognitive impairment may have trouble understanding information like this when it's delivered. And Dr. Wengler was finding that really people understood and had an interest, and it helped them to better explain their diagnosis to other people and to better understand it for themselves as well. That's great to hear. Now, what about you? What are the next steps you're taking in your own research? Right now, I'm working on my dissertation, and I'm interested in looking at really who has an interest in using amyloid imaging technology as far as individuals who come into the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. So I'll be using data from the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Pitt to look at what psychosocial factors seem to influence interest in using these diagnostic technologies. So our center is able to track interest in participation in amyloid imaging studies. So we have a sense of who does want to participate in these studies, whether there are healthy controls with no cognitive impairment or individuals diagnosed with MCI or with Alzheimer's disease. And I'll be looking at whether there are differences in demographic characteristics or in neurocognitive status or family history and and whether these factors seem to make a difference in whether people want to participate in amyloid imaging. So I'm looking forward to looking at that data and really seeing what I can find. That sounds really interesting. I look forward to hearing what you have to say, uh, what your results show. Is there anything else you want to add today? Well, I just mainly wanted to say thank you to the Alzheimer's Association. You all have such great information on your website, and you do such an important job in the community in providing support to families. So I just wanted to give a plug for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for this interview and for all of the work that you do on behalf of people with dementia and their caregivers. Thank you so much for doing the interview. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Amanda Hansaker discuss the impact of technology on the diagnostics and treatment of Alzheimer's disease on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.